0: Welcome to The Pitching Nerd Show, where we get nerdy about the art of pitching. I'm your host, Sean Kitzman, aka The Pitching Nerd. Let's get into the show. Hey everybody, this is Sean Kitzman here, The Pitching Nerd. This is The Pitching Nerd Show, Episode 9, and I cannot tell you how excited (laughs) I am about this guest everybody else i've kind of had a a a bit of a an in with and i reached out to bob on facebook messenger the other day and he said that he would come on the show and for those of you who are just new to me or new to the show i'm a huge baseball history nerd and uh bob kendrick is the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum down in Kansas City, which is a phenomenal piece of baseball history. And my cousin and son and I had a chance to meet him two years ago. Had a great chat with him and I'm super excited to have him on the show. Bob, thank you, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show and hanging out with me for a bit.
1: Hey Sean, man, it's my absolute pleasure. You know, the, the interesting thing about it is I am brand new to Facebook. Perfect. So I really don't even know what I'm doing <laughs> on Facebook. They finally convinced me to sign up for Facebook. I had my hands full with Twitter and Instagram, and so I just joined Facebook. And so it was very cool, though, to get your message inviting me to be on the show, and I'm happy to be a part of it.
0: Well, Bob, you're killing it on Facebook. I mean, you're just taking what you're doing on Instagram and putting it over there. And I loved the uh, <clears throat> your outfit yesterday and talking a little bit about <laughs> Satch and you know, because that was that was one of the things that. Um, You know i mean the the interesting thing about the negro leagues is is that it it really that time period encapsulates what the country was at that time and and when you read and do the history you you know you kind of do your history a little bit on in your research on the negro leagues you you figure out that the games were played on sunday oftentimes and so everybody would come just dressed to the nine so yeah. why don't we kind of start there and talk about why were the games on only on Sunday and talk about, you know, like how the how the teams um you know were able to play in major league stadiums but the restrictions that they had on
1: them. Well, and, and you just really touched on the fundamental reason that the majority of the Negro League games were played on Sunday is because they were renting the ballpark from Major League teams. Yeah. And Major League Baseball, for the better part, didn't play on Sunday. Sure. And so the Negro Leagues would rent the ballpark, play that Sunday doubleheader. We left church, as you just mentioned, dressed to the nines. And that's where the idea for the annual event that we do with the Kansas City Royals kind of came from. Mm -hmm. And it's one of my favorite stories because, as I so oftentimes say, every now and then, an idea comes along that's so good sure. and you wish it was your idea <laughs> and, and, and 20 years from now I'll lie and <laughs> swear it was my idea but it wasn't my sure. idea. Sure, You know, uh, a, a group of young white kids sure. approached me seven years ago mm-hmm. and they said, well, Mr. Kendrick, what do you think about an idea to see if we can get fans to dress up, to come out to Kauffman Stadium the way they used to go to Monarch Games. And and we want to call it Dress to the Nosh.
0: You've given me goosebumps, man.
1: Yeah, and the first words that came out of my mouth, damn, how come (laughs) I didn't think of that? The idea was just absolutely brilliant. Sure. And and so the first time out with my involvement, we did a Twitter campaign, I guess about three weeks before the game itself. Mm-hmm. We got nearly 300 people to put on their Sunday best. We met out at Rivals, out at the ballpark, sure. at Kauffman Stadium. Yeah. And you could see people were looking wondering, why are all these folks dressed yeah. up? Well, in year one, the Royals didn't get involved because it was too quick for them sure. by the time they found out what we were doing. Sure. But they loved the idea so much that the following year they got involved sure. put some pr muscle behind it and now thousands of people put on their sunday best in the spirit of how fans used to dress it's it's this homage to the way fans used to dress for those games sure. and and it is a spectacle to behold well it should and, be. and, and it, it really is and the women yeah the women go all the <laughs> way it nice. you know stop they, they got their hats on sure. they got the pearls they sure. got their gloves they got their purses sure and you see the kids wearing their little fedoras and, and I call it the most fashionable day in baseball and, and it's been amazing to see how people have, have really taken this whole idea to heart and and, and we've created really a tradition And it was just based on how the fans would be at those games. And the Royals have done such a tremendous job because, you know, the teams that we play, the both teams are typically in Negro League uniforms. Uh The grounds crew is in in vintage grounds crew uh, attire. The announcers, they've got their fedoras on. And and so everybody really gets into the spirit of this thing. And, And so we really miss that this year because sure. of the coronavirus pandemic sure. but to keep the spirit alive i put on my sunday best yesterday anyway and we did a virtual
0: and you look pretty to damn night. good i gotta tell you bob you look pretty damn good man <laughs> you you look like i mean you looked like you were just coming from the speakeasy to go to the game right you look like you just came from the jazz club i mean it looked good man
1: thank you man thank you you know it, they put a lot of pressure on me now these days because every year people are waiting to see what I'm gonna come with. Sure. And so I gotta always make sure that I that I try to come correct and because you know fashion was such a big yeah. part of the Negro Leagues experience. Yep. And, and when you look at the pictures, not only were the fans dressed, <laughs> but when you see the ball players outside the ballpark, yep. yep. they were immaculately dressed. Yeah. And, and the late great Buck O'Neill.
0: No. My
1: favorite guy, man. (laughs) He would say that a kid could come from the cotton fields of Georgia or the textile mills of South Carolina to come join the Kansas City Monarchs. And you know the first thing they did when he got here? They took him to the tailor at Historic Eighteenth Divine. The tailor was going to make him two suits. He'd sign for them, and he would pay them when he got his first check.
0: From yeah. the
1: monarch, yeah. Oh, it meant something sure. to be a monarch. Sure. So now,
0: I mean, I'm gonna suppose, and when I say this, I I say this kind of uh, a little a little. Um, I don't want to say the word ashamed, but assumingly that a lot of people, even though you've done, even the Buck did so much great work for the Negro leagues, and even though what you guys have done down in Kansas City. And throughout the league, you know, I mean, because when we were in Michigan, I was at one of the uh, the games where you know the Negro leagues. It was the Negro League Day, uh, actually. Yep. Well, it, that wasn't where I got this shirt, but I've got a, a shirt on that I bought from a guy. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Yep. So um, outside of outside of America. Um, so we were walking around, it, it was, it wasn't even, I don't even know if there was a game on, but there was, there was, they were doing uh there was something going on downtown and I walked by this guy and I, I, I happened to look over and he had all this, this Negro League, you know, uh, stuff to sell and, and. I can't stop, but I I cannot not go say something to the guy. Like there's, I'll have guys walk by, and every once in a while, every once in a while, I'll see a guy with like the the leather Letterman jacket on that's got all the teams on yes. the back of it. And I, I if I see that guy in the grocery store, I'm gonna go chase him down because I can't help <laughs> but to not talk about him. Because there's, I mean, well, there's a number of people who know about it, but it's it's a kind of a small select group. So for the people who don't know. About um, a the Negro Leagues, but really the Kansas City Monarchs and and their significance to I mean, they might know it from Jackie, but but talk about the Monarchs and talk about who you know who they were to Kansas City and then actually okay. to the rest of the Negro Leagues.
1: Oh, absolutely! When we talk about the Kansas City Monarchs, we're talking about one of the greatest baseball franchises not in black baseball history. Yes, but in baseball, history, yes, sir. There, there are those Scott, that say the Monarchs were the New York Yankees of the Negro Leagues. There are others who will say that the New York Yankees were the Kansas City for Monarchs sure, of for sure. The major League, they were that good. Yep, they sent more players to the major leagues than any other Negro League franchise. Yep, they had one losing season in their almost 40-year existence in the Negro League. Sure. That was during World War II when so many of their star players had gotten called into service. Sure. And they were owned by J.L. Wilkinson, James Leslie Wilkinson. Everybody called him Wilkie. Mm-hmm. And, and Wilkie was the only white owner yep. of the original eight Negro League franchises. And, of course, he owned the Kansas City Monarchs brought them in as a charter member of the Negro Leagues in 1920. So yeah, and so they were good from the very beginning all the way through the very bitter end sure. of the Negro Leagues. And J.L. Wilkinson, I like to say, was a diminutive white man from Algona, Iowa.
0: Which is Small crazy.
1: town Iowa, who is one of the largest <sighs> figures in black baseball history. Yeah. Yeah, it would be Wilkie who would pioneer night baseball in the Negro Leagues. Yep. Five years before they ever played a night game in the major leagues. Yeah, the history book is going to tell us that the first professional night baseball game, 1935, Crossley Field, Cincinnati, Ohio. Right. Well, uh-huh, uh Cincinnati Reds versus the Philadelphia Phillies. Well, the history book is wrong the first professional night baseball game took place in 1930, and it featured our very own Kansas City Monarch. Wilkie literally mortgaged everything he had to pioneer night baseball. Portable, generated light towers. So not only could they play a night game in Kansas City, they could load them up on the truck and play a night game virtually Anywhere, which is, a-
0: and, which is really significant for a team, right? For, for, for a Negro league team, because now they can generate revenue, not on just Sunday, uh, they can generate revenue anywhere.
1: Ex- exactly. Uh huh. And, and so now if a major league team wasn't using their ballpark, they could come in even and do the game a- at night now where the major league teams weren't playing. So you're right. This was Wilkinson's way of generating additional revenue. He wasn't necessarily doing it to be innovative. He was doing it for survival. Sure. Because again, they were primarily relegated to playing on Sundays. And so he was looking for a way to get the working class fan sure. into the ballpark. Sure. Night baseball became the answer. Sure. Night baseball became bigger <laughs> than Sunday games. And let me tell you, Sunday games were so <laughs> popular that black churches would move their service sure. time up an hour. And if you know anything about the Black <laughs> Church, you don't mess with service no, time. No, sir. 11 o'clock Sunday go to meeting. Well, when the Monarchs <laughs> were home, service started at 10 o'clock sure. and everybody filed out to that Sunday doubleheader. Night baseball was even bigger than that.
0: Sure, that's incredible. I mean, the 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 thing that when I started, so when we were off camera, we were off recording, I told you that you know of all the eras of baseball the negro leagues is my favorite and the, one of the reasons why it's my favorite is because there was so much ingenuity there was so much craftiness like i'm i'm a big fan of craftiness and <laughs> and i mean and and they it was a fun game right i mean yeah. it was it was it it, it had that, that jovial spirit to it And the guys were larger-than-life and characters, you know?
1: It was entertainment. Yes, sir. It was entertainment. And I think the Negro Leagues embraced the fact that baseball was entertainment. So, yes, when you went to a Negro Leagues game, oh, you were going to see fundamentally sound baseball. For sure. But you were going to be thoroughly entertained. And and the Major Leaguers, as Buck O'Neill would oftentimes say, the major leaguers would accuse them of showboating. Sure, you know, and, and, and as Buck would say, if you got something to show, show it. For sure, yeah, that's all right to show it. And, and so, if a guy would dive in the hole, flip the ball behind his back to start the double play, of course, that's a Sports Center top ten highlight. You know, now every night during the season. Yeah. Uh huh. But the major leaguers would say they showboating. But as Buck would say, it's only showboating. When you can't do it, well, (laughs)
0: and and think yes, that's true. And think about how far ahead of that that time. I mean, who was uh, in my in my memory? So you're you're a bit older than I am. But when I look, kind of think back to baseball, and I think about that thing in Major League Baseball, the first guy I remember doing that was the Wizard, Ozzie Smith, right? And so, but think about how far ahead of the the curve they were. And, and that's the thing that people don't understand, that when you look at baseball history, and if you don't know anything about the Negro Leagues, you don't know baseball history.
1: Be- well, and and uh, uh, I apologize. No worries. And, and, and you're absolutely right. And, Be- and so when you, you know, you mentioned Ozzie Smith. Yeah. Well, Willie Wells is the name that comes to mind. As the old timers in the Negro Leagues say, he was Ozzie Smith. Before we ever knew who Ozzy Smith was, there we go. He was making those same kinds yep. of acrobatic plays. Now Willie Wells had power, though. Sure, he was a shortstop with power. Sure, great hitter. Yeah, but you know, and, and I, that's why I think when Ozzy, who has been a dear friend of the museum, sure, every time he comes to the museum it's special for him because he understands that that is his lineage. Yeah, he becomes the wizard because of those who (laughs) sacrificed before him. And I think he has a great deal of respect for those who paved the way for him. But yeah, you know, and and to see those guys playing that style and fans flock to those games. For sure. Black and white. Yeah. Black and white fans came out to those games because the game was different than Major League Baseball. Yep. It was a very brash and fast aggressive style of play and so major league baseball and there's nothing wrong with this style nope but it essentially was a base to base kind of game for sure so a guy got on base you moved him over to second and then the big hitters came up and they drove him in
0: yeah well in
1: the negro leagues they're gonna drop that bunt yep and then they're gonna steal second yep and they're gonna steal third at home and if you weren't too smart they were still in home. Yeah. Or they're going to butt and run and hit and run. There was constant movement. And, and so it held your interest. You know, and, and to me, when I look at the game today, the game has reverted back. Yes, sir. To what it used to be. Yes, sir. You know, because now it's a home run, strikeout game. Yes, sir. Whereas in the Negro Leagues, it was about contact. They had guys who can hit the ball out the ballpark for sure. But essentially, this was about contact. Like we're gonna put it in play. We're gonna put pressure on your defense yep. to make the play every single time. Yep. You know, and then great pitching and great defense is still the formula to win games today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and it's funny because if you look back through the 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 annals of baseball, <clears throat> you'll see only a couple periods of time. You know, uh, even post, well, pre uh, uh, Jackie, you only see a couple times where guys were stealing eighty bases. You know, I mean, obviously the the famous one is Ty Cobb. You know, um, but you don't see like a ton of guys stealing a ton of bases no. until until the integration, right?
1: Exactly. And, and see, Rube Foster, when he started the Negro leagues in nineteen twenty here in Kansas City, yep, that was the style of play that he preached. And he might have six, seven guys in his lineup that could steal your 30, 40 uh, bases sure. uh, a year sure. or more. And, and probably the last major league team that played that way, our Royals in 2014 and 15 yes, sir. were very athletic teams. Yes, sir. But prior to that, it would have been Whitey Herzog's yes, sir. St. Louis. Yes, Park's, sir. With the Ozzy Smiths and the, the Vince Coleman's yep. and the Willie McGee's yep. and the Van Slyke, those guys. Yep could all run, and he had them in constant motion. Yep. And they were just a fun team to watch. Well, 14 and 15 here with the Kansas City Royals, it's the same thing. Yep. But you have to have great athletes to do that. For sure. See, I think they're great baseball players, and they're finely conditioned baseball players, but speed is not the thing that you see really at the major league level anymore. Where it was such a prevalent part of the Negro Leagues game. They would just run you into the ground.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and if you made any mistakes, you're in trouble, man. You're in trouble. Yeah. So um, I would be remiss, because this is the Pitching Nerd Show, to not talk about – so Buck is my absolute – I I will not lie to you. I have read – and we talked about this. (laughs) I have read this book more times than I can tell you. When I read this book in 2007 – I lent it to a friend of mine, and we 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 call it the Buck Book. That's the our nickname for it. And I give it to my friend, and I looked at him, and I said, "If you don't cry when you read this book, you're a sociopath, and there's something wrong with you." Yeah, like, you
1: know, and, and it, 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 it's, it it really does trigger all the emotions. For sure. You know, it, it, it makes you think. Yep. It, it makes you laugh, you cry. Oh, for sure. You know, you it it, it all it spans the gamut, and and for me and I was there for the journey in 2005, but when you put Joe Pasnansky, who is one of the great writers of the 21st century,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and Buck Mm O'Neill, who is one of the greatest human beings to ever walk the face of this earth, when you put them together, something magical had to happen, and it did in Soul of Baseball. It's a beautifully written book about a beautiful human being and it's a, you're right. It's a baseball book, but, but not. it's really not. It's a it's life a book, book, man. Love it, yeah. It's yeah. A book about loving and living, yeah. Through the eyes of Buck O'Neill, yeah. And, you know, I just happened to be there for the ride, man. I was there tagging and hanging on his coat tail, sure. you know. And, and so I witnessed this, the way that people reacted to him, sure. Whenever he went somewhere, or if he didn't know you, it didn't matter. He was going to come up, he was going to introduce himself to you and you all would start a conversation sure. and by the time you were parting ways, you're sharing an embrace as if you've known each other all your life. Yes, sir. The man absolutely never met a stranger yes, sir. in his life and, and I think that's what made him so special and then you add the dimension of his legendary baseball playing career managing career yeah, yeah. and then scouting in the major leagues and then breaking the color barrier as the first African American coach yep. in the major leagues. Yep. And then the work that he did obviously in Ken Burns' epic documentary yeah. on the on the history of baseball where he literally stole the show. Oh for he sure. Really did. Yeah,
0: the, yeah, yeah, he was no, the star yeah, of yeah. The Ken Burns documentary one hundred percent. I remember watching it when it when it was out on VHS so I had a, a girlfriend in high school, and her grandpa was a big baseball fan, and one t- he lived with them for a while. And one day I go over there, and grandpa's sitting there watching. And I'm like, what is this? Because it was brand new, you know what I mean? Like I wasn't watching PBS at the time at, you know, 16, 17 years old. The last thing I was going to be doing was watching PBS. And he goes, oh, this is the baseball documentary, and I just sat there. And Christy, my girlfriend at the time, she had to drag me out of the room. Cause I was like, I'm, I'm watching baseball with grandpa right like like we could go do something else and then that's how i (laughs) that's how i you know kind of came across it and then when it came out on dvd in the in the early 2000s or late 90s early 2000s i got it and um then i was just immediately and actually before that um the the hbo movie that delroy Lindo was in um yeah that was that was my real outside of a little bit of the the you know what I saw from the documentary and then that's what introduced me to Satchel Paige um yeah. who I mean you and you can't talk about Satch and not talk about Buck and buck about Satch you know so um and I you know as the pitching nerd um I I would be like I was I was going to say I would be remiss not to talk about Satch and oh, yeah. t- talk about his legacy on on obviously the Negro Leagues but you know I mean he was so good that they had to make up rules to stop him when they got to the MLB, right?
1: <laughs> they took his hesitation pitch. Yeah, they called it a balk. Yeah, they took it away. It really wasn't illegal. No. There was nothing illegal about that No. Pitch. But they took that away from the old man. Yeah. And Satchel Paige, arguably the greatest pitcher ever. Yes, sir. Yeah, and, and without question, the oldest rookie yeah. <laughs> in the history of Major League Baseball. Yes, sir. Major League Baseball says that Satchel was forty-two yeah. when he finally got his opportunity to pitch for the Cleveland Indians in nineteen forty-eight as a rookie. Cleveland would win the World Series. As a matter of fact, it was the last time Cleveland yes, won sir. the World Series. Was nineteen forty-eight with Larry Doby, yep. and Satchel Paige,
0: yep. Uh-huh.
1: And many thought Satchel should have been named Rookie of the Year. Sure. He goes six and one with a two-point-four ERA his rookie season at age 42, right. which means he was likely closer to 52. Yeah, He never told his real age. Yeah. And as I tell people all the time, I'm not convinced that he knew sure. his real age. Sure. Yeah. Right. And, and whether it was 42 or 52, he was absolutely amazing. Yes, sir. And, and so it does make you wonder what would have happened if he gets to the majors in his prime. Because you got to remember, in his prime, they clocked his fastball at 105 miles per hour. Yes, sir. But what really made Satchel so special, and as you well know, 105 is pretty doggone special. Yes, sir. But what really made Satchel so special was 105 with 10-point yes, control. Sir. He could put it exactly where he wanted to put it. And and, and we're not talking about just throwing strikes. No. Uh Uh-uh. The catcher set the target. He hit the target. Yep. He didn't miss. I tell people all the time, he didn't warm up in the bullpen (laughs) like most pitchers do throwing to the catcher across home plate. Satchel would use a stick of foil chewing gum wrapper. Yep. The catcher would sit that chewing gum wrapper on top of home plate, and wherever the catcher moved the chewing gum wrapper, Satchel right over the top of that chewing gum wrapper. Yes, home. sir. He was just absolutely uncanny.
0: Well, I mean, even Bob Feller. I I have the the uh, the book of you know Dizzy Bob, Rapid Robert, yeah. Satchel, uh-huh. and, and Dizzy, right? Or however that goes. Yeah. You know, I mean, Bob Feller and the thing that the thing that i think people have to recognize about the relationships that a lot of these a lot of the Negro league players had with the white players was that there was a whole lot of reasons not to have those relationships there was a whole lot of reasons for bob feller to not talk nice about satchel page because of the time unfortunately yeah and so you know like it 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 wasn't hyperbole it was not you know like there was a and i'm sure it, uh, on the side I'm sure Bob Feller caught hell, right? From from his yeah, teammates and, and from other and major you league players. Remember,
1: you have to remember that when you're talking about Satchel and Bob Feller, you're talking about two of the greatest self promoters. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. So it was all about money. Yeah. And Feller was making a lot of money and Satchel was making a lot of money. Yeah. So in 1946, Rapid Robert has his plane he rents a plane for or leases a plane for Satchel, and so Satchel's All-Stars are taking on Bobby Fellas All-Stars. Yeah. They're going East Coast to West Coast after the World Series, and they're outdrawing the World Series. Yes, sir. Yeah, they filled up Yankee Stadium for a game. Yes, sir. You know, and so this is mano y mano. Yep. You've got the creme de la creme, the best of the best, going at it, and... People were just enamored. They're coming to these games and they were making a lot of money. Buck O'Neill says for 17 days of work in 1946, each of them could earn $7,000 a piece. Now, if they were making 7000 you can rest assured <laughs> that Fella and Satchel were making a whole lot more than that <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, I, honestly, if I could make seven grand in 17 days, I'd do it today.
1: It's 17 days of work. Right. You got that, yeah, sign me up. How
0: do I do that? The other cool thing about that is they're taking baseball or professional level baseball to the West Coast, right? Because all yes. you had was like the PCL teams. You didn't have like the Angels and the Dodgers. This is before all those teams no. were there.
1: No, this is before the Dodgers and Giants moved out yeah. to California. And see, I think that's another one of the fundamental differences between the Negro Leagues and Major League Baseball was the barnstorming aspect yes, of black baseball. See, Major League Baseball was so rigid because it was isolated within those areas in which they played. But the Negro Leagues, they took baseball all over the country. Mm-hmm. They would take baseball into Canada. Mm-hmm. They were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. Sure, And believe it or not, it was a touring team of Negro Leaguers that introduced professional baseball to the Japanese. Yes, sir. Going all the way back to 1927. Yes, sir. That is well before Bay, yes, sir. And the Stars would go to Japan.
0: Yep. Yeah.
1: And so the game is a global game in large part due to the Negro Leagues. They never got credit for it. Sure. Yeah, they never got credit for it. And and honestly, the Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were. Sure, they just wanted to play baseball. Play, man. That's all. Yeah, that's all. And if you can play, you can play.
0: Yeah, and and um, so I uh, there was a guy. There was a gentleman here. Um, He's with the Twins. He's attached to the Twins. Um, Now his name is Frank White. He's not Frank White. Yeah, I know Frank. Okay. All right. All right. So he was here on a snow. Well, he lives in the Twin Cities. He, he yes. was he was here, and he gave on a snowy Saturday. I think it was he gave a talk on Minnesota black baseball, and yes, um, yes, And I went, and I, I did the same thing I did to that poor guy. I did to you, man. I talked that guy's ear off after the end of it. After the end of his talk, <laughs> like I had to leave. I felt well, bad, I, you know, because I
1: know Frank enjoyed it, though. He's a good guy, and he's a huge historian, particularly as it relates to the black. Black baseball history in Minnesota. Yes, yeah, sir.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. and it's such an interesting thing because so I have theories about certain things. Um, you know, when you look at history, when you look at baseball, and you look at uh, you look at where there's talent that pops up. See, I, I really think that a lot of that happens, especially in places where baseball wasn't. So here in the Twin Cities, you know, obviously in the 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 late seventies and into the early eighties. You had just this really with with Dave Winfield and Ken Herbeck and all those guys, you had this pool of talent that's really interesting, right? I mean this and there's a really big baseball culture here in the Twin Cities. and then you start to understand that you know there were there were minor league teams here that were populating and showing people that it was possible to play baseball at a high level you know, way before there was a major league team here. And so when, when, when Frank was talking about his dad and he actually, he actually told a story about his dad and Buck and, uh, Mm -hmm. and bringing his dad down to, and that was another one of those stories. Like I'm sitting there and, you know, I don't know anybody in there and I'm looking around. I'm like, am I the only one else here? That's tearing up listening to the story. And of course, Buck has to be part of it. You know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, I, I I taught, like I said, I talked that poor guy's ear off afterwards because it's it's such a cool thing to to have people that understand the history of the game, and then also for him, like he got to experience it with his dad. You know, I mean, such a cool thing.
1: Yeah, no, it is, and and it's great history in that part of the country. Even though they really, you know, just had a Negro leagues team very briefly. Yep. Yeah. Um, but the history of black baseball is so significant there on both sides of the Twin City. And, and the players who make their way through that area, you know, you're talking about Willie Mays. Yes, sir. And Ray Dandridge. Yes, sir. And Roy Campanella and guys like that who made their way there, you know, to that Minneapolis-St. Paul area, playing on their way up to the major leagues. Yes, sir. And, of course, Ray Dandridge never got to the major leagues but Ray Dandridge, who was there at the same time, Willie Mays, he's older yep. than Mays, would have been at that time. Ray Dandridge was named MVP of the Minneapolis Millers when he was almost 38 years yep. old. Yeah. Now, there was a, Ray Dandridge was an outstanding ball player, but there was no way they were going to take a 38-year-old black third right. baseman right. to take the place of a young white player or you know, at that time. And so Ray Dandridge never really had a fair shot to get to the major leagues, even though he was outplaying those young guys.
0: Well, and think about those how many games do we think Ray had at that time under his belt at exactly. 38, right? I exactly. mean, a ton because he was barnstorming and 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 playing as much as they possibly could just to earn a living yeah. at
1: the time. And then playing every winter in Latin America. Yes, sir.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk a little bit about that too, because that's a really interesting thing. I mean, you know, um, probably because of the you know because of the the Negro Leagues, you, we probably don't have the same type of baseball development in Latin America if if those guys don't go down there. And oh, there's
1: no question there's no question about it because they took that style of play yes, sir. to to those Spanish speaking countries. And, and, and it's interesting to me to see the Spanish speaking athlete still plays that yes, style sir. of play. Yes, sir. And so people get a little upset, they might flip the bat and that kind of thing. Well, that's all part of the way that they were reared playing the game. Yeah. But the Negro leagues, it was a cultural bond For sure. that was shared between the Negro Leagues and many Spanish speaking countries. As I mentioned, they were some of the first Americans to play in many of those countries. And the interesting thing about it was when they went to those countries, man, they were welcomed with open arms. Yep. They were treated like heroes. Yep. They stayed in the finest hotels. They ate in the finest restaurants that those countries had to offer. And then you come back home right. and you're treated like a second-class citizen. Yes, sir. So a lot of neo League players would call those Spanish-speaking countries home for one simple reason. In those countries, they weren't black baseball players. They were just baseball baseball players. That's all they ever wanted to be. But the list goes on of great stars who played in various Spanish-speaking countries. You know, one of the names that come to mind for me is a guy named Willett Brown. Not a household name, Mm -hmm. but Willett Brown is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And Willett Brown was beloved in Puerto Rico, and for the older Puerto Rican baseball fan, he is just as renowned as Roberto Clemente. Wow! Uh huh. And in Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican fans nicknamed Brown "Ese Hombre," <laughs> uh-huh. that man. And he won the triple crown in Puerto Rico twice. Wow! We we have his Puerto Rican Hall of Fame plaque on display. At the Negro Leagues Baseball oh, Museum, man. or or there's Monty Irvin, yes the sir. great Monty Irvin, yes sir, who while playing in Puerto Rico, a young Roberto Clemente was struck by Monty Irvin, sure, and stuck to Monty Irvin, and as Roberto Clemente Jr. said, my dad idolized Monty Irvin, yes sir, he would carry Monty Irvin's uniform <laughs> to the ballpark. Because if you carried the player's uniform yeah, to the ballpark, yeah, yeah. they let you in the game for yeah. free. <laughs> and that Monty Irvin gave his dad his first real but baseball glove. Wow. Yeah. And, and I tell wow. them, and, and what what that tells you is that every hero has a hero. Yes, sir. And for Monty Irvin, I mean for Roberto Clemente, it was the great Monty Irvin. Yeah. And, and when Roberto Clemente was sadly killed in the plane accident. Helping other folks. Yes, sir. Yeah, on, on a mission to Nicaragua yep. to help people. He and Monty Irvin would ultimately be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in the same class.
0: See, I did not know that. That's really cool.
1: Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a really super cool story. I mean, it's it's again it's why the negro leagues is is my favorite part of baseball history because like 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 it, as you're talking about it and i'm you know you put the pieces together they traveled to japan pre babe ruth right i mean you know they traveled to all around all the latin american countries and and you know um i mean if you think about the impact that that had culturally and socially on those areas and then the benefits that baseball fans reap and continue to reap because of that. I mean, it's, it's something that, unfortunately, a lot of people don't know about.
1: No, they don't. And that's the beauty of baseball. It is a universal game. Yes, sir. It is a game. And, and the Negro Leagues help make it such. And, and I think that's part of the story we try to bring across when people come to Kansas City. To experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I do think that's why people have fallen in love with the story of the Negro Leagues. Yes, sir. Again, it goes back to the notion that man, we don't care what color you are. All we care about is can you play? So So
0: so let's talk about um and this is probably gonna go in a direction that you didn't expect it to, but um Again, doing my history a little bit of research on it you know in, in Kansas City at that time when the monarchs were there and you know Dizzy and Louie and everybody strolling through town that area of, that that the, the black area of town is really hopping right
1: 18, vine, where yeah. We are. So. The is-
0: yeah so now I was down in 2007 and so mm-hmm. Kansas City is a very different city today than it was in 2007. Right, as far as like the development of the city. There's oh, absolutely so but absolutely. I was struck. I was struck because I was down there in two thousand and seven, right? And I was struck by the development that's going on around the around the museum and eighteenth and vine. And you may not say this, but I'll say it. I cannot help but to think that the museum is a big part of that redevelopment and the rebirth around that area there so talk to people about what 18th and vine was before like when when the monarchs were there and and talk about that and then talk a little bit about what happened you know like in a lot of a lot of rust belt cities see i'm from michigan right i'm i mean i'm you know like I, i flint and detroit like rust belt cities right so talk about what happened then and talk about what has happened over the last you know 13 years, or I mean, I was there two years ago, so the last 11 years since I was there in 2007 well, to what it is today.
1: Well, you know, when you talk about 18th and Vine, you are literally talking about a cultural crossroads where jazz and baseball yes, intersected. And, and really, the things that Kansas City is famous for, barbecue and <laughs> jazz, yes, sir, all originated there at historic 18th and Vine. And to put it into perspective for those who will be hearing about 18th and Vine for the first time, in Kansas City, black folks could only live within a 13 block radius. And the museum is right there in the hub of where that African-American community was. And it was only about a 13 block radius that African Americans could move around Mm -hmm. in Kansas City. Could not go outside those 13 blocks. Mm -hmm. But as I tell people within those 13 blocks, you had everything that you needed. So 18th and Vine was the epicenter of black life in Kansas City. Again, a cultural crossroads where jazz and baseball intersected. It was as recognized street cross section as there was anywhere in the world because you had that intrinsic mixture of jazz and baseball coming from that street corner. People still come to Kansas City and stand on the corner of 18th and Vine to get their picture taken. Yes, sir. Or as the late great Buck O'Neill would say, if you had a relative and you came to Kansas City but you hadn't seen your relative in a long time, just stand there on the corner <laughs> of 18th and Vine on a Saturday night, they got to walk by there. You know, that is the way that it was but see 18th and vine whether it was harlem or whether it was arvin avenue mm-hmm. in atlanta you know anywhere where you had successful black baseball
0: yes sir
1: you had thriving black economies yes sir and honestly when we lost the negro leagues we lost the catalyst yes, that helped drive that economy yes sir and, and so 18th and vine and a lot of those African American communities, they were left abandoned. They died. And as I mentioned, 18th and Vine was no exception. And so you're absolutely right. When we made the cognizant decision to build the Negro Leagues Museum at historic 18th and Vine, there was nothing self-serving about it. It was about the opportunity to try to spark redevelopment in what had been a very proud, prominent African American community. Mm-hmm. And very few museums will take on the responsibility of having to revitalize a, an entire area. For sure. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a tough enough task just for the mission of keeping alive the history of the Negro League. But there was this entire social responsibility that came along with the decision to anchor at Historic 18th and Vine. And many of those who are now ardent supporters of the museum they really were not too enamored with the idea that we were going to build that museum at historic 18th and vine because there was nothing else there at that time except for the old lincoln building which is where we housed when the museum first came into existence now 30 years ago in a little one room office there was nothing else at 18th and vine so you can understand the hesitancy that people would have because the idea was like, well, who's gonna come see you? There's no built in foot traffic. And then you've got the stigma of being in an area that people had labeled crime infested and it was dilapidated. And thanks to the wisdom of the late great Buck O'Neill who said, this is where we will build this museum. And when we build this museum, we will help resurrect this great community. The origins of the Negro Leagues began in this neighborhood and we will build this Negro Leagues Museum in this neighborhood and when we do, we will spark redevelopment in this area. That was 30 years ago. We haven't looked back. And and in that time span, the Negro Leagues Museum went from a one-room office to now being recognized by the United States Congress as America's national Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So it's been a tremendous journey for a little museum that no one gave any chance of succeeding. But in the process, that area is starting to thrive again. Yes, sir. And since you were last here, we oh, have my gosh, beautiful crazy. Urban, yeah, beautiful urban youth baseball academy. Oh, really? Right behind the museum. I think that was just yeah. starting
0: to build when we were there. There was yeah. There was just something going on.
1: Yeah, $21 million economic development. And for those who love our sport as much as we do, it's got a 40,000-square-foot indoor training facility. Nice. And four fields, you know, as we try to bridge the economic gap that has kept a lot of African-American yes, sir. kids from having a chance to play this game.
0: Yes, sir. And, and yeah, that is um, – man, there was a couple things in there that – uh that really made me, uh, you know, kind of gave me some goosebumps as we were talking about that. Um, you know, they, uh, the fact that Buck had that foresight to look at it, because now, see, when my when I went down there, my brother in 2007, I told my brother where the museum was, and he went, "What? Are you sure where? Is it? Are you sure that's where it is? Right? Because my brother lives in Tro- in Troy, right?" And so I was like, "Yeah, that's I don't know, that's where it says it is done here, you know." So let's go and see what happens. I don't know, you know. And then when we went back down, I was telling my cousins because my cousin lives in Milwaukee, so my cousin's a landscape architect in Milwaukee, and he works for one of the largest landscape architect firms in in this in the city of Milwaukee, and he's been there for probably eighteen years now, and he's watched Milwaukee rebuild itself, right? And much like Kansas City, I mean. Gosh, that tram that you guys have down through the middle of the of, of the city that you can get anywhere yeah. in the city with that thing. How cool is that? And what a walkable city. I mean, gosh. Yeah. It was yeah, gorgeous. A,
1: it's a it's a beautiful city. You know, it's right here in the heart of the of the Midwest, in the yep. middle of the country. So, you know, a lot of people think East Coast, West Coast, they don't think about the middle of the country as often. But the degree of culture and heritage that's here in the middle of the country is second to none. Yeah. And as late great Bucko Neil would say when he joined the Kansas City Monarchs in 1938, he says, I knew I was coming to the heart of America. I never knew I was coming to the center of the universe. Sure. Yeah, Kansas City was jumping, man. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So um and I, I love the fact that they have that baseball, that urban baseball academy, because you know, um, I was listening to I didn't I didn't actually get to listen to all of it, but CC uh, uh, Sabathia on his podcast R two C two they were talking about it with I can't remember who it was a couple a, a, a three or four episodes ago they were talking about you know the struggle that that you don't see you know the the African American population is not very well represented in baseball anymore which is an absolute crying shame because when I was a kid, man. You know like from as a as growing up as a in Detroit you know Lou Whitaker or Chet Lemon you know uh yeah or you know I mean my dad I mean my dad tells a story of meeting you know Willie Horton when he was a kid and he was just because my dad lived in Detroit during the 68 you know the 67 68 series um and you know then my and my dad's my my great uncle lived in St. Louis and so there was this rivalry between the Tigers there in my family between the Tigers and the Cardinals, yeah. right? And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, but you just think about like the, I mean, you can't, you know, it's it's a it's a shame that we don't have, you know, more representation from the African American community. And it's great to hear that you guys in such a such a a, a, a culturally diverse community that you guys have done that. Uh, really on the back of Buck's vision, you know? I mean, that's super cool.
1: And and thanks to our great general manager with Kansas City Royals, Dayton Moore. Yeah. Who wanted to see this academy built at historic 18th and Vine so that it could be connected essentially to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Sure. Kansas City was number seven of these academies across the country. Dallas has now built number eight. Mm Mm-hmm. But we're the only one that really has a Negro Leagues museum attached to it. So now as we're making this effort to try and get urban kids interested and engaged in our sport, they also get an opportunity to see themselves yes, sir. in this sport when they walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball yes, Museum. And so they get a chance to see some of the greatest baseball players who ever played this game and they look just like they yes, do. But not only did they play the game, they owned teams. They were managers and coaches and traveling secretaries and team physicians. They fulfilled every aspect yes, sir. of the business of the game of baseball. Yes, sir. And so while we want kids dreaming of playing this sport at its highest level, we also want them to understand that there are other opportunities yes, sir. involved in how you need to prepare in order to take advantage of those opportunities.
0: Now, I don't know if you've listened to any of my podcasts, but you probably have, and I don't blame you because you, you probably sleep well and don't need to get put to sleep at night. You know, listening to me, <laughs> right? But that's one of the things that I talk about. So, I had a guy on um, last you no know, two weeks ago. Um, he uh, he works with a, a this company called Diamond Kinetics and they have a baseball that's that is essentially it's like a cheap rap Soto, right so it's it's essentially a cheap and a baseball analytics I mean cheap relatively cheap like 99 bucks not like 4,000 bucks right but I was talking about one of the things that I want to you know like talk about because I work with kids right um when when I work with kids and that or when I work with players it's 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 height it's college down and you know, there's this small percentage of the population that gets the pl- the opportunity to play at the at the a at the minor league level, and then at the professional level. But there are a ton of opportunities to stay engaged in the game. And Bob, you massively stole my thunder when you were talking about that because that's such a that's such a cool, incredible thing for you to talk about because I think it's a really important thing. You don't have to make it to the show to to, to stay in baseball. There are so many other
1: opportunities. Yeah. And and kids need to be aware of that. But if you don't see yourself in that life or no one exposes you to those opportunities, you never know. And, and, And thus you kind of, well, if I didn't play in the major leagues, there are no other opportunities for me. And we want them to know about all the possibilities that come along with that dream of playing in the major leagues.
0: Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. Oh, man, It's such a cool thing. You like I, I, it's 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 amazing to listen to um you know the the history of of the game and really the history of the country. you know i, I when people ask me why I love baseball so much. And I'm old now, you know. I'm in my forties, so you know, I'm not. I'm not part of the whippersnapper generation anymore, you know. Like football wasn't king when I was growing up.
1: I vaguely remember my,
0: <laughs> but but football wasn't king when I was a kid. Baseball was king when no, I was a kid. No,
1: no, baseball was. Yeah, and baseball so was. and it so was, it was the national pastime. Yeah,
0: baseball is as Americana as you can possibly get. And the only you know yeah. when, when my grandfather was growing up. And and when your parents were growing up, I mean, the two things were baseball and boxing, right? I mean, that was that's it. it. Man, that's you, it. You were somebody if you were the heavyweight champ, and you were somebody if you played on a baseball team, right? That's it. And so, so, but the 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 the, and boxing kind of follows some of that political or the the landscape of baseball. But baseball really follows because baseball is ahead of every curve. Every every yeah. curve in the history sure. in in you know within the the modern you know 20th and 21st century right and so Absolutely. i think it's i think it's such an important thing and and that's why I, I love the museum so much and i love what you guys do down there and i love the message that you guys put out because it's so important for people to recognize that this game is culturally diverse and we have the opportunity to to, to have a great game that is really fun um, and really uh, really a real nice game to watch because the bonus about baseball is that you and I could meet at the game, have some peanuts, have a beer, have a conversation and still watch the game and know what's going on. Right. It's such a social event, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And, And that's why baseball is still the most romanticized sport of them all. Yes, sir. I mean, people mark errors in their lives through baseball. Yes, sir. And as I tell people all the time, whoever your favorite baseball player was when you were a kid, in all likelihood, it's going to be your favorite baseball player uh, forever. For sure. You know? Yeah. And for me, it it was Henry Aaron. Yes, sir. And and so in my mind, there'll never be a ball player better than Henry Aaron. Yes, sir. Even if they're better than Henry (laughs) Aaron, they won't be better than Henry Aaron in my mind. Yes, sir. You know, but that's the beauty of baseball. And I think it's the one sport where we consistently and constantly compare the stars of the past with the stars of today. In the other sports, it seems to be more generally accepted that the guys who are playing today yes, were better than their contemporaries. Yes, sir. And, and not in baseball. No, not in baseball.
0: yeah. No, no, no. And and while some of the comparisons I mean, obviously you can't compare, you know, uh uh Honus Wagner, right? I mean like because they played such a different game. The other thing too is that no other sport has had the evolution that baseball's had, right? No. So when you look back, when you go back to rounders, and then you know you kind of crack into the to the game, and then the changes that the game had, and then the segregation, and then once the integration happened, then the changes that happened to the game then, and then you go into that you know kind of the post golden era into the integration era. And then into the '80s, when the game was—I mean, you had all aspects of the game. And then the steroid era. I mean, there's so many, there's so many generations, or there's so many snapshots of the game that you could literally focus on one era of baseball and never get, never come close to getting to
1: everything. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and that's and and the Negro leagues fits right into one of those slots. Yes, sir. And it's that piece of baseball history most. Baseball fans don't know. Yes, sir. You know, and and they're surprised. Yes, sir. They're surprised because, you know, I tell people all the time: what's not to love about the story of Negro Leagues? It is everything that America prides herself. Yes, sir. And and I think once people are introduced to the story, they absolutely fall in love with the story. They fall in love with these almost larger-than-life figures who overcame tremendous social adversity to play the game that they love. Yes, sir. And, and that was the thing that drove them because it would have been easy for them to quit. Yeah. Oh,
0: for sure. It really
1: would have been. <laughs> right. been easy to quit. Yeah. You know, so, okay. Cause you know, you, they're riding into towns and they're filling up the ballpark and yet they can't get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them, yes, sir. or not have a place to stay. Yes, sir. So they would sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers until they could get to a town that would offer them basic services, yet they never allowed that social adversity to kill their love of the game. Yes, their sir. mindset was like, okay, if I got to sleep on the bus and eat my peanut butter and crackers, I'm gonna keep playing ball. Sure. And, and really when you come to the museum, that's the prevailing spirit Absolutely. That drives the Negro Leagues Museum Absolutely. It's not a sad Samba kind of story no, sir. Like a lot of people believe it's going nope. to be uh-uh, no. It's a celebration And we treat it as such it, It's the celebration of the power Of the human spirit To persevere and prevail
0: It's the it's, It is a all senses Experience You get in there and every emotion that you possibly can have. If you're a if you're a relatively decent human being and you walk <laughs> into the museum and you get all the way through the grandstand and into the locker rooms and out onto the field and you don't go walk over to those statuettes and you don't go into the gift shop and buy a damn book or a hat. There is something wrong with you. Right? I mean <laughs>
1: If you don't feel something by the time you get there,
0: hundred you might
1: be dead. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Right. They, we might need to get like some holy water and a cross, right? Because because you might be a vampire or you might be a zombie, right? So, well, Bob, do you guys have anything going on right now to to support the museum? What's going on?
1: You know, it's been quiet, as you can well imagine. For sure, and we're all just kind of trying to adjust on the fly as a result of this coronavirus pandemic. You know there's no way to plan for that right we, none of us saw it coming right and for us it takes on an even larger scale because this is the 100th anniversary of the birth of the negro league oh i did the not know that were, yeah the leagues were formed here in kansas city 100 years ago okay and so this was a huge yeah. year for the negro league's museum yeah and so we started our celebration in february because the leagues were formed february 13th okay 1920 Okay. So on February 13th of this year, we have a commemoration of that historic occasion. Sure. Scott, hold on just a second. I need yep. to plug in because yep. on, I'm going to run out of. Go
0: ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay.
1: All right, I apologize.
0: No worries. You said I thought you were going to have a 15-minute conversation. You didn't realize how long-winded I was, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, we, on February 13th of this year, we go back into the Paseo YMCA. Okay. That is where Drew Foster led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners into Kansas City.
0: What what they cities meet- what yeah. cities were they in? And,
1: and and those teams were dispersed. You had two teams in Chicago. Yes, sir. You had the Dayton Marcos, the Indianapolis ABCs, the Detroit Stars, the Kansas City monarchs St. Louis Giants, and the Cuban Stars. Yes, sir. And, and so they formed the Negro Leagues uh and the Indianapolis ABCs. Mm-hmm. And and so they formed the Negro Leagues in 1920. But the meeting took place here in Kansas City, Mm -hmm. right around the corner from where the museum operates. That old YMCA building still stands, and and we've designated it as the future home of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. What? And so, yeah, we go back into that building, that historic landmark, and and we've got the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Mattel, is in town. We've got the chief operating officer of Major League Baseball's Player Association, Xavier James. We've got the mayor of Kansas City, the honorable Quentin Lucas, the great Frank White, Royals, yep. legend, yes, sir. Yes, Frank sir. White, yep. who is now Jackson County executive. Oh. He's there. And then the lieutenant governor of the great state of Missouri and our new Kansas City Royals owner, John Sherman. Oh. All gathered there as we commemorate this milestone occasion of the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues. Major League Baseball and the Players Association announced a joint $1 million contribution to the museum. Mm -hmm. So we're off and running.
0: Mm -hmm. We're off
1: to a flying start. We announced some of the things that we're going to do over the course of the year, including a National Day of Recognition with Major League Baseball that was being planned for June 27th, where all 30 Major League teams we're going to wear our commemorative patch
0: oh, yeah. on the
1: sleeve of their uniform. And, and this was going to be a watershed moment. Yeah. You know, it's unprecedented that every team in Major League Baseball was actually going to pay tribute to the Negro Leagues in that fashion. And so this was going to be very special for, as it relates to the history of the Negro Leagues, but certainly what it meant to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum sure. as the primary caretaker. Of that history yes sir so we're off and running man and then a month later right everything comes to a screeching halt yeah coronavirus yes pandemic. Sir. Yeah. And, and so we're still reeling a little bit from that we've had to cancel virtually all of our programs and events uh, so we don't know how much of this year we're gonna salvage but what I can assure you is we will roll this celebration into 2021. Okay, yeah. This celebration is too meaningful. It sure. is too important to be conducted in a watered down capacity. Sure. And, and we want people to be able to embrace, I mean, both major and minor league baseball were all on board. That's we cool. had celebrations planned all over the country <clears throat> this year, and they've all kind of fallen by the wayside sure. at this point. But, you know, right now we're just in the mode of trying to get the museum back open again in some limited capacity yes, uh based on the you know the ordinances that uh, we have here in Kansas City and I'm hopeful that in early June we will be back open um you know again in a reduced scale capacity but you know again back open again and trying to get back to the business of celebrating this history and Starting to create some level of normal normalcy, normalcy uh, in something that has been about as abnormal as any of us will ever experience, and hopefully will ever Correct. experience.
0: Correct. Yeah, for sure. So, do you? Are, are is there ways for people to make do- donations uh, yes. to the museum? Yeah, talk talk about that a little bit. You can't get yeah, out no, of here no, without selling the museum, Bob. So feel free, well, sell well, away, well, buddy. And,
1: and, and- and we appreciate that because we do need your support. And I think that support is, is, is even more critical in this juncture, at yes, this sir. stage, and where we are with this shutdown. And for those who might be inclined in either becoming a member mm-hmm. of the Negro League Baseball Museum or just inclined to make a donation in support of the museum, we are a 501c3 mm-hmm. not-for-profit organization. You can go online to nlbm.com there's both a donation link as well as a link for membership uh, opportunities and and of course those contributions will be greatly appreciated we encourage everyone to join our team and help us keep the legacy of the negro leagues alive talk about and, and with the life lessons that come from yes, sir. the legacy of the negro Leagues.
0: talk about the membership package what when when someone becomes a member what are the tiers that they can get into and what do they get
1: yeah All right, membership starts as low as $25. They're one year annual renewals. There are certain premiums that come with each membership level. And and so we think that there's a level that's certainly there for everybody to participate. You get your official Negro Leagues Museum membership card and your official Negro Leagues Museum lapel pin and these kinds of things that come along with it. And, And as you can well imagine with each level that you go up, the premiums get a little bit better and so and what i love about it for me membership is almost like becoming a stakeholder in an organization yeah you 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 know and and so when you say each year I, i am so in tune to your organization that every year i am going to make an investment in your organization because i believe in the work that you all are doing i to me that's that's more nothing more significant than that, and, and so we've got we've got people who are members of this museum who will likely never step foot inside sure. this museum, sure. but they understand why this history is so important, and they understand and have embraced the notion that the legacy of the Negro Leagues should play on long after there are no Negro League players left yes, sir. to attest to this wonderful story.
0: Yeah. So if uh, and I'll tell you, um, the, the, one of the things that I, the first time that we went, I was down there. My, my nephew was, oh my gosh, he was probably six or seven, right? He wasn't very old. And so I drugged my poor nephew and my brother and my sister-in-law through the museum because none of them are baseball fans like I am, right? Like I could have I sat down and probably stayed there all day if they would have let me, you know? But one of the things that not only is the museum incredible, just the just the history that's there. But the thing that people really need to understand and they'll only understand when they get there is the people that work at the museum. And the first time I was down there, we I walk in there with my nephew and you know he's he's you know five or six so he doesn't really understand that much about baseball other than his baseball and baseball cards. And man, the sweetest woman gave my nephew a stack of baseball cards. Like, I could not believe she's like, I was buying a hat and I bought a hoodie. I've got a, a, a zip up hoodie and I bought a, a buck shirt and the whole nine. Right. <laughs> and and she slides these. She goes, you, you give these to that, that little boy over there. Right. And I mean, that that first stuck with me. And then when we were down there again two years ago and we got in the, you know, the uh, the the shop there. And just the the feeling that's in there and watching people come in and interact with the merchandise, you know, like, again, from all different cultures and walks of life and and the people behind the counter. And, I mean, it's such a great, great, great experience. And I hope that, uh, especially the people that are here in Minneapolis that are listening to this, you owe and, and it to we yourself. we get a
1: lot. We get a lot. That, and that's one of the things I'm going to miss with, the, with this short and baseball yeah. season because we get a lot of Twins fans. Yeah every year
0: yeah for become, sure
1: um you know they're very knowledgeable fans yep. as it relates to the history of this sport they follow the twinkies very well yep. they come to kansas city. Kansas city is an easy city sure for the other fans from the minneapolis area to make it here yep and, and we get a lot of twin fans who stop by the museum every single year and, and of course we're going to miss that aspect for sure of the you know of our business as well baseball season plays such a big role but I'm thrilled to hear that because we have a very small staff. We're sure. a small organization, you know, from that standpoint, but everybody's so vested. Yeah. They really believe in what we're doing. Yeah. And I think they've all bought into the notion that this is bigger than any of us. Yes, sir. Yeah. And, and if But if we do it right and we build something that sustains itself over time. Yes, sir. And in essence, you've left a legacy. Yes, sir. And I tell everyone who makes a contribution to the museum to help us preserve history, in essence, you're helping make history.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and, and so it's important, and it's important to our team. And they've embraced it, they love it. Uh, you know, we try to make the atmosphere as fun as we possibly can. But I think they all relish in seeing people like yourselves and others who come in and who have this great experience And we want to provide a great memorable experience for all of our patrons when they come there to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum.
0: Well, I'm here to tell you, I mean, for the, for me and my son and my, my cousin and my even my brother was really surprised. I mean, and he's not a baseball fan whatsoever, you know? I mean, like, you guys did a great job with the six of us. And, um, you know, the conversation that we had now, I want to, before I let you go, because I know I'm, I'm, I've got you on here a little bit longer than you probably thought you were going to be on here for. But uh, once I get your, once I get my hooks in you, you can't, uh, you can't get away (laughs) real easy. So one of the things that we were talking about and I thought was really cool. And you were talking about, you know, taking, taking a, well, the, 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 the black, the, the Negro League teams and, and how the, the communities flourished around them. And it was funny because we were talking uh, when I was there, we were talking about the the Hamtramck Stadium, and that was uh, before Jack White, the, the musician, had put yeah. you know had donated some money to that, and and really, you know, has done a great job around you know the 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 country, really kind of supporting baseball. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's just such a cool thing that that there's starting to be this kind of resurgence of interest in the negro leagues and obviously you know the the museum is a huge part and reason for that and you're starting to see it in communities where you know that that may have been dead for a little while but it's coming back around so it's fantastic
1: yeah no we're excited about that and you know i think the interest is continuing to grow as it relates to the negro leagues and those who become fans of the story as it's presented by the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and more and more, we're seeing that group grow in terms of the fan base. Yeah. Again, the Negro Leagues Baseball and history and the museum as a caretaker of that history. And we all get excited about it. This history should not die. No, sir. And, And see, and we knew from the onset, when we started this museum 30 years ago, that we were dealing with what essentially was a finite piece of history. Yes, sir. And and that it wasn't a matter of if, it was simply a matter of when. All the players who were part of this story were all going to be gone. And so every time we lose one of those players, that window closes just a little bit more. And it puts uh, obviously a great deal of pressure on the museum to try to acquire and preserve as much of this history as we possibly can before we lose the people who made this history. Mm -hmm. And even more so, lose the people who saw them play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they're all going to be gone at Mm -hmm. some point in time. But that's the role of a museum. A museum is there to keep those who are no longer with us alive. Yes, sir. and, And to make sure that these stories live on. Now, our challenge is how do we make their story relevant to this generation of young people yeah. and that's where we talk about the life lessons yeah, sir. that stem from the negro leagues yeah this is a story of pride and passion and determination and perseverance and courage those things transcend race age gender they never go out of fashion yes sir and, and it is our job to make sure that we relate that to everyone yeah and so we want people to know the story of the Negro Leagues for its rich educational value. Yeah. But we also think that there is very much an inspirational value to this incredible story.
0: Yeah, well, I've, you know, I mean I've read a bunch of books and watched a bunch of video and things like that on on the Negro Leagues and each time I pick up a book and I read about a new someone new you know, there is a th- that inspiration. I mean, one of the reasons I love Satchel Page so much, and I never saw him pitch, I mean, heck, what do we have, like maybe three or four videos that we've got on YouTube, right? Like, no, we don't have a ton, no, but good God, no, that no, guy's no. story is fantastic.
1: It, 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 yeah, and, and the same thing. When they learn about the likes of Paige and Cool Papa Bill yeah. and Josh and Oscar Charleston and Turkish Stern, yeah. you know, Detroit guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and people just, the lore and the legend that surrounds these athletes are absolutely incredible. You do fall in love with them. Yeah. And you want to learn more about them. And that's our job is to make sure that that history is there for generations to come so that they can learn and, again, be inspired by those who just wanted to play ball. In the final equation, they had no idea they were making history. For sure. They just wanted to play ball.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the great part, too, right? They just did what they were going to do anyways, right? And that's and that's that's the best story. So, Bob, yes. how can people find out about you? I'm going to put all this in the show notes. So, But go ahead and, like, so you're on Instagram, you're on Twitter, you're on Facebook. So, and I'm on Facebook. Yeah. And
1: so both my Instagram and Twitter name are the same, at N L B M Prez P R E Z and, and of course we're always constantly posting fun factoids about yep. the history of the Negro yep. Leagues, the events, what's happening at the Negro Leagues Museum. We'll certainly keep people abreast of when we reopen and everything in and around this year's hundredth anniversary celebration, future plans and so forth and so yeah. And then of course uh, you can find us at on the World Wide Web at nlbm.com.
0: Well, I'll make sure that I put all of that in the show notes. Um Bob, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. I mean, like the the show's real early, but I I guarantee you when I look back at the shows that I've done over the next year, 2 years, 5 years, 10 years, this is going to be a super special show for me because it is like I said, one of my very favorite periods of history. And then the conversation that I had with you when we were down in Kansas city, I mean, like, uh, again, obviously we could talk for a long time because we're just long winded talkers. Right. But, but we, you know, the conversation was so fun. So thank you so much. And by the way, I'm going to put this on record. When I come down to the museum, I'm going to look you up and I'm taking you to AB's you got it i'm taking you, you to ab's because you actually told us to go to ab's and we went to ab's and it was fantastic so so i got like, for, 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 a, a, a,
1: a, everybody know me you know i like to eat so well, you you got a deal so yeah <laughs>
0: that's the that's my cost of getting you on the show is, is i'm gonna take you out to lunch okay sounds good bob thanks so much again i really appreciate you and i appreciate your time man
1: my pleasure anytime
0: thanks man Thanks for listening to the Pitching Nerd Show. To grow the Pitching Nerd crew, do me a favor. Rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps me to get to better guests and more opportunities for the podcast. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you guys soon.